0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. For this episode, we're going to be talking about the most asked questions I've received over the course of the years. I was actually talking to a keeper the other day who asked a question that was one of the questions on here, and I want to make very clear, I'm not putting these out there to be like, please stop asking me these questions, because they're going to continue. That's the nature of the beast. It's been years now I've been answering them, and I'm totally okay with that. I put them out there just because I think some people will find it interesting to find out that they're not the only one who who have asked this question before, and I do think Some of the ones we are covering or will be covering today are ones that they don't necessarily have. Well, some of them do, some of them don't, but the majority of them don't necessarily have a simple answer. So it's not like a yes or no type thing. It's something that I usually tend to go into a longer explanation for. And again, as I've stated many times in the past... I can still remember vividly what it was like to really dive into the hobby and start encountering some of these issues that keepers encounter when they start keeping spiders. So it's very clear in my mind. I remember it vividly. I remember the stress that comes with it. So I get why people reach out. Sometimes you just, regardless if it's something you look up online or can find online or not, it's just makes you feel better to speak to an actual human being that can tell you hey this is okay this is what I've seen and this is why or whatever it may be so I do understand it. so I don't want this to ever come across like look at Tom's making fun of people for asking these questions I will tell you right now that I've just answered a few of these just a few moments ago similar questions so again keep them coming there's no problem please don't last time I did something like this there were people that came on and apologized and they're like I'm so sorry I asked you this question it's not about that it just I think it's interesting even for me it was kind of fun fun to go through and realize how many of these that I I had questions about when I first got into the hobby. And I can tell you that some of them seem to be a little bit, you know common sense on the surface, but they're really not. Some of them are, I know for a fact, where the origins you'll see in a moment, they're ones that just because of what I do and who I am, I get asked them. So anyway, I was speaking to somebody who was emailed me and was kind of conceding, you've probably gotten this question a million times, and then they said they'd be curious to hear which ones they get or which ones I get. So it kind of got my mind going. I thought it'd be a fun one to cover, and in the very least, it's kind of like a little FAQ for people that are just getting into the hobby that listen to this podcast, they can go go, oh man, I would have asked that question, or this was something I was wondering before. So as we go through them, I will answer them to the best of my ability, explain some little anecdotes. Uh, some of them are kind of funny because of where they are asked, and that's another thing. I obviously, there's not just the email, there is, uh, well, it used to be Instagram, I had been on Instagram for a while, and quite frankly, it's because I just like throwing pictures up and bouncing, and I was getting a lot of questions over there, and it's like I can only do so much, so I kind of left Instagram for a bit, but I'm hop- hoping to come back. But then there are also messages on my videos, and those tend to be the, the, mass- the majority of questions I get are off of those, with emails being sent. And then, you know, Instagram was a far third, but there's a lot of different places. People will contact me. So... What makes it funny sometimes is the videos they choose to ask the questions on. I think people who have been listening to me for a while know what I'm referring to. But anyway, let's get on to the discussion. Now these aren't really, and I will say they're in a vague order because there's a couple toward the as we get toward the, you know, the bottom of the list that are the ones that are by far asked more than any other question. But there are some in here. I just kind of put put a list together of the most common ones. I didn't bother tallying it. It would have taken years to go through all those emails and everything. But just kind of a general The first ones I'm going to cover are maybe asked less so, and then as we get toward the bottom of the list, these are the ones that are asked uh, consistently, like I'll get two or three a week at least on them. So anyway, to kick it off, first one. What is the husbandry for X species? I get this one all the time, which is completely reasonable. And for example, sometimes people will go through my website, my podcast, my YouTube channel, and they'll look for a specific species. And if they don't find it, then they will shoot me an email and go, Hey, Tom, I was wondering, I didn't see any of this up on your site, but I'd really love your take on how you keep, you know, such and such a species. This just happened with... Simiroxagorum Barupis, where somebody said, you know, I thought I heard you mention that you kept them, but you didn't really have any husbandry information up. So I remedied that. I do keep them. I plan to do an update. Billy and I had shot a rehousing video in which I went over how I was currently keeping them. And I actually just wrote an article that I'm waiting to post up. And I'll explain a little bit more of that maybe at the end of this. But a lot of times they'll come to me and be like, I, and I truly appreciate it. They trust my opinion on husbandry. So before they pick something up, they want to hear my take on it. And in some cases, like the B rupees, I do have the animals and I will quickly put something together because that's the whole point of what I do to make sure the information is out there. When I bought those, the whole goal was to keep people updated on them. But in other cases, I don't have the animals and I won't speculate. If it's something I've researched and I feel like I can tell them this is how I would keep it. I will sometimes say it. But the other day, somebody asked, I think it was H. Long Capiz, if if I kept them and if I knew how to keep them. And I didn't know anything about them. I mean, I could have hopped online, done the research, but that's not the point of asking somebody. They want to know if I've kept them because they want my experience with them. So that's a deal with that. Now, where this becomes comical, and this has become kind of a running joke in our house. And I hope, and again, I do this kind of tongue in cheek. It's I, I get it. I do. But I will do a long video on husbandry, try to throw, when I do one of my husbandry videos, I'm talking about big husbandry videos where I like break out all the stops and do like everything I've, and I'm thinking, for example, G. Pocrypies right now was one of the last ones I did. I try to explain every single thing I can think of about these animals, put every detail in. People will come onto those videos and post, hey, Tom, I'm thinking about getting a G. Pocrypies. Can you tell me about the husbandry? Literally on a video that's like 15 minutes, 20 minutes long of, Everything I can think of about the husbandry. That's where it sometimes gets a little silly. Again, I will answer them or my response is usually, hey, I'm not sure if you watched the video, but please watch the video and let me know if there are any questions after that because sometimes you miss something and I totally get that. But a lot of times I get they'll, they'll just pop on and I don't know if they just don't feel like watching it or if they watch it and I spoke too quickly and I'm not saying this in any way, shape or form because I, to be mean, I do speak quickly and I've been told that some people, especially folks that English isn't their main language that I can be a little difficult to follow because I speak so quickly. So that I completely understand. But I think sometimes they just don't even bother watching the video and they just want me to go and regurgitate everything. And it's like, I'm not going to do that. If I have an article, sometimes I will come on and go, oh, sorry, I didn't answer your questions in the video. Here's a link to the article, the text version, because maybe there are people that need to see it in front of them. I know watching a video, if I were to watch a video, I'd probably be taking copious notes on it. If there was a text version, I would probably prefer the text version. I enjoy reading. I have no problem reading. I love printing stuff up, highlighting it, taking notes. I'm a geek that way. So I, it's, it's a, it depends on the person and individual, but we do get a good giggle where, you know, every once in a while I'll be answering messages or comments and I'll go to Billy. Hey, somebody just asked me how to keep the heartbacteria bees. Want to guess which video that was posted on? And she'll go bacteria bees." And I'm like, yeah, you win. And it's kind of running a joke, but I, I will answer it. So I do get why people ask. And again, I think in some cases too, and I shouldn't, I should probably mention this as well they'll look at an older video and wonder if something's changed. And that's that's actually quite right. I mean, it's, you can't make fun of that at all. I, I agree with them. If you look in a video, it was posted in 2015 and it was one of the first husbandry videos out for that particular species. Yes, I'd be asking questions too, in which case I usually point them to more current videos or I will come on and, and say some stuff that I've no, you know, noticed just keeping them for years so that would be one of the main ones that I get and again it's keep them coming I don't want this in any way shape or form I know what's going to happen right now I'm going to get an email from somebody going I'm so embarrassed that I asked you this question don't be I don't care I enjoy answering questions it's what I do it's it's not an issue at all I just think it would be fun to kind of go over some of these so the next one cracks me up, and I get this one quite a bit. Could you please tell me where I can find this species? Do you have any dealers or connections, and could you please get me one? Now, that's kind of an overgeneralization of the question. It's asked many different ways, but I get a lot of folks that will see something up online that you know I talk about, or there's a certain species they're looking for, and they approach me about it because they think that I have like secret connections that I can get just about every species. I literally had one guy... Who really got kinda of pushy with it because I said, I'm sorry, I don't I don't have any way to get it. I, I was looking for them myself. I believe it was H. Chalensis at the time and I was looking for slings. And the guy was like, Come on, you know you have connections. Let me know where I'll pay anything. Just tell me, tell them I'm good people. You you can trust me. And he didn't get, I don't have connections. Now, obviously, I'm friends with Tanya Stewart from Fear Not Tarantulas. And, you know, I'm on her site sometimes. Honestly, Billy's usually the one that tells me when something's up on her site. I try not to actively look right now because we're supposed to be moving. And I shouldn't be buying any more spiders. So I've been kind of laying low. But I don't have, like, these secret connections where I can go out and go, Hey, I got a guy who wants some H. Chalensis. He's willing to pay top dollar for it. It doesn't work like that for me. If there's a species I want, I look it up. I find if somebody's got it, I buy it, and that's pretty much it. I don't – I always made a thing about not using the fact that I have obviously a public platform to get special gifts and freebies and stuff like that. That's not what I'm in it for. I enjoy doing reviews, and if I want to review somebody and they've got something I like, I buy it. And I don't have special connections as far as – I mean obviously – I'm sure if there was a species I really wanted, I there I could tell a deal, hey, keep a lookout for these, but it, it generally doesn't happen. I just go on websites. If there's something I want, I look for it. If it pops in, I buy it. So unfortunately, I do not have any secret underground pathway to get the hard to reach species. That is not true. I, there are species out there people get like, or sometimes don't believe when I'm like, yeah, I've been looking for these for two years myself and I can't get any. And they're like, well, you can't get any either. Yeah, I'm just like everybody else. I go out, I find them. If they come in, I buy them. I try to let people know. Uh, people ask me about species like H. chillensis. I have so many people like, please let me know if folks got them in. So when somebody gets them in, I will obviously advertise that so people can get them. But no, I don't have, uh, sorry, <laughs> I just don't have that kind of ability to go out and find these hard to find spiders because, you know, of my special, I don't know, VIP status or something because I do these silly blogs and videos. It just doesn't work that way. So that's one I get quite a bit. Just got one this week. They were asking about uh, what formictopus species and at first, I thought they were asking me if I had any. They're like, "No, where do you get them from? Let me know. I, I will go to the person. I will pay top dollar for it." And I'm like, "I'm sorry, I don't. I can't get them myself right now." So, that would be another popular one. Next one up: How often should I feed my tarantula? We get this one all the time. This is why I've been uh, putting in the videos lately that there's no right or wrong feeding schedule. I truly believe that. I mean. Obviously, there could be a wrong feeding schedule. If you're waiting a year to feed your spider, you're probably going to end up with a dead spider. So let's throw that out, you know, right out in the open. But as far as folks feeding twice a week, as folks feeding once a week, folks feeding once a month, I just talked to somebody who feeds their entire collection every six weeks or so, and everybody's doing fine. It doesn't matter. So this is one that... Obviously, and we've discussed this in length, so I'm not going to get really into it here, but this comes from that fear, that apprehension you get from keeping furry pets that need to be fed daily, sometimes twice a day, to moving to a creature that only needs to be fed once a week to once a month sometimes. If you give them a nice big meal, once a month will do. Some of them, one big meal, they're in pre molt and they're growing again and and molting and, and coming out with a new exoskeleton. So, it's tough for us to get to that habit that we don't need like fish, even fish. I mean, fish, you sprinkle some food in there once a day at least. We get out of that. We get in that habit where we feel like it's an animal that if we're not feeding it constantly, we're neglecting it. And that's a tough one to get over psychologically. I know I was very lucky that I did snakes before that, and snakes are another animal you don't have to feed, you know as consistently as you would your furry vertebrates. And this obviously causes a lot of stress with people. It did with me when I first got into it. So they worry. They're worried they're starving. I have I've, I've had somebody the other day email and they were terrified because they had been feeding their spider every other day and the pet store didn't have crickets. And I'm like, you're totally okay. You could get away with feeding them every other week. You could get away with feeding them once a month if you're feeding them decent meals. You don't have to worry about that. And so I do get where that question comes from. I get it quite a bit. It's one of the easier ones to answer because I just do my spiel. There's really no right or wrong. Pick a schedule that works for you. And I, I firmly believe that. So when people go out there, I have a more aggressive feeding schedule. And I think people... Hear that, and they're like, "That's the only way to do it," and it's not. It's just what I choose to do because it allows me. I have a big collection, and that enables me to go through and check on the entire collection at least once a week, like a a good look into it. I'm in there with a flashlight all the time, anyway, checking things out. I don't want people to think I just like let them sit there for a week, but that allows me to open the enclosure, check for bulges, check for mold, check for dead prey items, or you know, make sure the water dishes are full, add moisture, whatever it may be. That's why I choose the aggressive schedule that I use, but. Anybody, I've talked to many other people out there that use less aggressive feeding schedules, they do just fine. Now, coming, falling right in line with that one, the other one I get quite a bit is, hey, Tom, is it okay to feed my tarantula and then fill in the blank as far as prey items? What'll happen is they'll see one of my videos or see somebody else's videos where they use a certain thing, like somebody might only use mealworms, I tend to use a lot of crickets, and again, they think, well, Tom uses these, so these must be the correct thing to use. And that's not it. all. Oh, I've, I've, a lot of people don't use crickets at all and hate crickets. And I can't tell you, just this morning, somebody came on and said, why do you use crickets? There's so many better things out there. And I'm like, oh, here we go. So that's just what I use. And I do have three different roach colonies at the same time, which I don't talk about as much. I have mealworms. So I do use a lot of different things. I just usually, for feeding videos and when I'm talking about feeding, crickets are the most convenient for me. They're just quicker. Doesn't mean it's the right thing to feed them. Doesn't mean there aren't other things out there. Mealworms work great. Hornedworms work great. Waxworms work great. You got B. dubia roaches. You've got B. lateralis roaches. I've used the hissing cockroaches before. There are a lot of different prey items. For folks overseas, you have locusts, which I'm so jealous about. Billy and I just saw huge grasshoppers the other day, and we're talking about how we wish we could get those big locusts over here. I would love to use them. But there is so much stuff out there that you could use for prey items. All of them are good. Another question I get is about mixing up the diets. I have had, I've got that one actually twice in the last week where people have asked, is it good to kind of mix up the diets a little bit? I do it. I just, there's no medical science for it. I just like to mix up prey and some things are like, I've mentioned before that when something just molts, I like to drop a big fat doobie in because it gets a lot of nutrients right off the bat. usually takes them about a day to eat it and they put on weight rather quickly after that molt and you give them some energy after that stressful molting process. Uh, I've used mealworms with smaller ones, mealworm sections for babies. Sometimes I just throw some mealworms in there to shake things up a bit. You can feed them the same thing all the time and you're perfectly fine. You can mix it up a bit. I'm guessing that can only be a positive thing, but there's no, I don't have any scientific evidence to back it up. I did have somebody email me recently asking if there's anything talking about what ideal tarantula nutrition should be and what is in each of these animals and what they should get so kind of like we have you know the humans we have the pyramid what should we be feeding our tarantulas and I don't think as far as I know there's nothing on that these guys are not haven't been studied in that way so yes you can feed them one thing yes you can feed them many things yes there are many different things you can feed them and feel free to experiment with what works for you because again i would said crickets work for me some people hate them some people like the road I do like red runners I use those uh, quite a bit too especially with my smaller ones I absolutely love them for those cute little things too I feel terribly about it but they they make good food source for my tarantulas so moving on to the next one this one I get quite a few of usually with some photos is this enclosure appropriate I get that one a lot and again this is this is a good one and not that the rest of them are all good but this is one of the ones where people apologize and i'm like no don't apologize at all because we all do this I've, I've talked you know last podcast i talked ad nauseum about the fact how i love experimenting with enclosures i will never stop i will never be completely satisfied there will always be something new out there that i want to try out even if it's something i don't think i'm going to use per- personally for the long term to be able to report to people hey look at i've tried these out if you find them out there they make good tarantula enclosures i can head off some of these questions with it but i get this one all the time and sometimes it's something very it's a very well set up enclosure what I've really enjoyed lately honestly and in contrast to when I first started doing this is the majority of the picks I get lately are beautifully set up enclosures uh, I think a lot of people are emulating what I'm doing and not saying that's perfect it's not and there's obviously you can get much more creative and do much more with it uh, with the enclosure setups themselves but I've been getting a lot of like you see like for example somebody sent me one with a piece of aetheria species I used to get a lot of things. It was a piece of litharia with a little tiny bit of, you know, a little sling with a little tiny bit of dirt, a big piece of cork bark, and no type of... Uh, fake foliage or anything for it to hide behind no moss just a very barren enclosure I'm like yeah it's not a good enclosure for them they like to dig now what I'm getting is people are getting ones with a couple inches of moist substrate they've got the sphagnum shoved in there they've got lots of places to hide with fake foliage and they've got a good setup for a piece of Litheria species so people are actually doing their due diligence they're doing their homework and more often than not I'm getting some pics of some very nice enclosures they do every once in a while somebody will send me something and be like hey I've, I found this in my attic I'm thinking this would be great for my avicularia avicularia, and I'll look at it and be like, nope, wouldn't use that at all, you know, I, somebody that had an old candle holder or something, it was like a, it was supposed to be a it was an old candle, but it had like a cover to it that could snap on and it just didn't look like an appropriate enclosure. And they were, they were grateful. They're like, do you think this would work? I go, I personally wouldn't use that. And they're like, all right, thanks so much. I'll try something else. Or sometimes they you know have something that they think is a really good idea and I'll go, here are my thoughts and why I wouldn't use that. And they turn around and go, thank you. I've got something that's much more appropriate. I'll use that instead. So that's a great question. And again, I've, I've encouraged people before in the past that if you have something you're not sure about, reach out and I can give you my opinion. I have used enough things that I can, I think I have a pretty good eye for recognizing what will work what won't or in some cases all right that will work but you need to do this to it like somebody showed me one recently where there was like no cross ventilation a couple holes in the top and I'm like you really want to get some cross ventilation in there for that species so the cage thing the enclosure thing that one's a good I, I I'll continue getting those they're all good but I mean this is one of those ones that it, you can't always get your answer from a search some of these other ones you can do a search you'll get some information granted it may be contradictory information like you'll get one person will say one thing one will say the other and again i do think that leads to people reaching out with these questions because of the fact that it can be tough to find consistent information but in this case i think some of these things you just need somebody that's been in the hobby for a little while that recognizes the, the immediate, you know, immediately recognizes the pros and cons to be able to say, that's a good enclosure, do this, or I would put that back in the garage or use it with something else. So great question when I get that one. And again, I think I have one of those in my box today. I have to answer that I noticed when I was just before I was going on the air with this. So the next one I get quite a bit, is this an appropriate substrate for tarantulas or What should I use for substrate for tarantulas? Now, sometimes I get this after I talk about substrate in a video and say what I use and the fact that you could use anything and and it's like, okay, look at, you know, two minutes and 30 seconds in, I answer this one or whatever, but the majority of these are emails or on videos that I don't talk about the substrate. That's a big concern for people. I get it. Having gone through a situation where I picked up a couple bags of substrate that were tainted with something that was probably herbicide and possibly, well, I know for a fact it had fertilizer in it because I ended up opening up a second back and find the little fertilizer balls, but I also, from the symptoms that my tarantulas and insects that I was putting on it had, I'm guessing it was an herbicide with it. We worry about substrate because we don't want to bring in chemicals from outside. We don't want to bring in possibly something that's corrupted or contaminated with herbicides or Dangerous chemicals, you never know. So, I get why people stress about this. And I personally bounce around and use a lot of different things. I use for years the cocoa fiber, just like everybody else. Then I started using, you know, keeping more fossorial species that required moisture. I found that that stuff, you know, the water, you can wet it down easily, but it collapses when it gets dry. It doesn't hold a burrow. It can hold a burrow, they will web it, but it doesn't hold it great. And it tends to dry out very quickly. So I moved to topsoil. Used that for many years by itself. Realized that the biggest issue I have with topsoil is once it dries out, it's very difficult to rehydrate. It seems like you pour water in it, it just gets muddy on the surface. So I started adding vermiculite and experimented later with some sphagnum moss in it, trying to make it so the water would absorb in. I've been using BioDude substrate quite a bit. Love BioDude substrate. That's something that I know that it's going to be clean. It's going to be okay. I, like, I don't have to worry about there being any additives in it i like the consistency of it i haven't had any issues with mold with it I, it's great stuff it's just a little bit pricey so sometimes i'll recommend it to people and they'll go really eight bucks a bag or whatever it is now i think you can get i think it's 10 bucks a bag or you can get like uh free shipping if you buy three of them it's like 30 bucks which is expensive for dirt it's it's essentially dirt but i love the fact that i can put slings on it and trust it and god forbid anything was contaminated i know right where to go if there's an issue so i do get the substrate thing again. Uh, Cocoa fibers, very popular, topsoil is very popular, peat's very popular, mixtures of all of those, if you go on my videos, you'll find ones where I mix different types up, I just created a new mix, it was kind of like the BioDude one, where I was just kind of playing, I bought the stuff myself and kind of mixed it together to see what I could come up with, and I kind of like that, so there's a lot you can do, and again, almost like the enclosures, playing with substrates is a fun part of the hobby, find something that works for you, people have been putting sand in. They've been putting the excavator clay in. We've experimented. I even had somebody was taking a type of kitty litter that's made out of it. It's basically just 100% clay. And they grind it all up in a blender. And they put that in. And when they dig their burrows and it starts to dry up, it solidifies. makes a nice strong burrow. So many different things you can do with the charcoal that helps with keeping down the molds and fungi it also helps filter smells and odor there's so many cool things you can add to it so again play around with it but make sure that if you're playing around with substrate or dirt that you buy from your local home depot or whatever you may get your dirt from garden store make sure it doesn't have additives you don't want poo you don't want sometimes it'll say one hundred percent organic, and they'll say it has animal waste for fertilizer. You don't want animal waste; that's going to bring potentially bring bacteria in that you don't want. If it's chicken waste, that's going to be kind of acidic. You, you want to stay away from anything with any additives. And I think the two that I've used without incident for years are Scott's General Topsoil; it's like two bucks a bag, and then Timberline. And you either get them at Lowe's or Home Depot. For those overseas, I'm sure you have your places you can go to. I do talk to a lot of people overseas that will actually pull dirt from outside. I don't do that myself here because I never know what's been sprayed between my neighbors. Maybe one year they sprayed for mosquitoes. I don't want to take the chance of introducing something into it. So great question with the dirt substrate. I will continue to get that one. I will continue to field that one because again, there's a lot to do. It's not one of those ones you can just go this. I tend to go into this long description of the things I've used and some of the pros and cons of them. Next up, one I get quite a bit. And again, this is one of those ones that can depend on where the question is asked but a huge one, I'm new to the hobby. What is the best beginner species? What is the best tarantula to start with? I get that one a lot and obviously I, I don't think that needs any explanation because people getting into the hobby they find out there's different types of spiders, some are better than others for pets. They get a little nervous and they want to find out what is my best shot of having a, you know a, a good successful first keeping experience. Now the only time this one becomes funny and we get this one a bet, and again, this is one we kind of joke about in my house is I've done two beginner species videos now and an article and an update article and this usually happens with the videos somebody will come on and post a comment hey could anybody make a recommendation on a good beginner tarantula I kid you not there was one this morning (laughs) when I woke up on my beginner species can somebody please tell me what the best beginner species is I did one where I basically pulled people on Facebook and on my YouTube channel collectors to tell me what they thought their best was what their recommendation would be and we added them all up and kind of came up with as close as we can come to a list again it's all they're all good spiders on it but we tried to put together as you know this was the most voted of all of them I believe it was t albopelosis that came out number one which was no shock there but we literally asked everybody and this is what they is it, the best part is it isn't just my opinion I'm not I it drives me nuts when YouTubers or folks come out there and just go this is exactly what you should keep these are the best. Nobody can really answer that. So I opened it up and tried to get other people's opinions and people will still go on and ask that. And one of them, I, usually my response is, well, I don't know if you've watched the video yet, but if you want to go through the video and then if you have any questions and sometimes they're like, yeah, I just want to know what the best is. Other times, like. Yeah, I've watched the video. What is, what is the good species? It's like, I don't know how to answer that. I just laid it out for you. I think there's 13 different ones on there. So I, I try to be nice and go like, well, if you look, number one was T. Albopelosis, And then they'll usually throw something at me like, what about an OBT? And I, again, I kid you not. So again, not a bad question. I spent months before picking up, you know, again, I'd already had a tarantula the queen but when I started getting really into the hobby I was doing a ton of research trying to figure out what my first slings would be and I learned that there are beginner species and there are advanced species that was something I didn't know about when I first got into the hobby I just thought the tarantula is a tarantula so I did a lot of research on that and I think a lot of people do the same thing they're like I'm gonna get a spider and then they realize how many different species are out there and that they're not all the same that there are some old worlds there are new worlds they get spooked and they want somebody to tell them is this a good one what should I start with? It's a totally reasonable and understandable question, one that I enjoy answering. I usually throw out like the top three choices, and I usually throw the g in there because it's one of my favorites. I have, I think, five of them. Adore them. Great spiders. Very easy to keep. Very laid back. I might give them a couple pros and cons of each, and then... Send them on their way to try to figure something out for those who posted on the video. I do usually ask did you watch the video watch the video first and again, let me know if you have any questions after that because it's kind of silly to spend the time and this is where this is where it can get time consuming. I get a little frustrated because it's like I have so many questions to answer. And I hate leaving anything unanswered. So I feel like compelled to go through, well, if you watch the video, it's this, this, and this. But what I've been doing lately again is, hey, watch the video. Let me know if you have any questions. And usually they don't come back with anything. But it's just so funny when somebody comes on. It's like we spent so much time putting that video together. I was very proud of it. It was one thing. I don't do a lot of lists. I don't, I'm don't. not a fan of the list thing because I think they're, it's just all a matter of opinion. But that was one I felt really comfortable with because people really chimed in and and gave their best suggestions for what they thought the best beginner species were so to have somebody just kind of go on not watch the video and ask it's like come on man it's it's you can skip around it's it's not that difficult to go through so that's one that i get quite a bit again completely understand it and obviously one that's going to continue to be asking one that i will always have no problem answering and, unless it's on one of my videos where i explain the whole thing then i, I sometimes get a little annoyed but i'll answer it anyway and smile Now, with the people asking what the best beginner species is, the next question that usually comes up, and I'm going to kind of chunk this into one, but will be, what is the best tarantula to get for handling or what is the most docile tarantula out there? Because I like to handle, I get this one quite a bit. This is a tough one for me only because I always feel like I have to put, you know, give my little disclaimer about you don't have to handle tarantulas and that not everybody handles the tarantulas. I try to do it tactfully like just to give you a heads up and then I will move into species that I know are... Generally thought to be more tractable than others, but this is a tough one for me because I feel like there's so much more information somebody needs to know that's getting into the hobby, and I truly believe this that you need to be aware of the fact that even though everybody's t albopelosis is supposedly cute, fluffy, and handleable, there are specimens out there that are not. There will be ones out there that somebody just called me the other day. theirs is a demon. It flicks, it throws up threat postures, it flicks hairs at them. There's always that exception. There's also the fact that we talk about that slings in juveniles, I don't see a need to hold slings. I think that's just asking for trouble personally. I know some people do it. If it ends up on your hand, and I'm not talking about like you're you're changing an enclosure or you're doing a rehousing, it ends up in your hand. I'm talking about people that actively hold the slings. I've seen them bolt. I've seen them quickly get places where it's difficult to get them out of. I just think that's like an accident way to happen. Plus at that size, they're expecting to be preyed upon by larger animals by birds by reptiles by whatever it may be that's out there that will eat you know arachnids and insects so it's kind of you have to figure it's a little bit traumatized and have this big hand come down and scoop them up so I, i get into you know all right heads up yes the bee hemorrhoid is known to be very docile and tractable as an adult but expect your sling and juvenile to be a bit more skittish. In fact, I've talked to many people that have hammerized it right around that three inch mark. They turned a little crazy speed demons and kicking hairs and everything. It's it's not an easy question for me to answer because I can't just go, oh yeah, pick up this, this, and this. I need to explain to people there's more to the story. I need to explain that there are other things you need to think about. and The fact that there are a lot of people don't handle it all. The fact that recognize there are old worlds and new worlds that if you start getting into old worlds you don't want to you know handle those because if you get bit you might be in the hospital things of that nature and it's tough for me because I don't want to sound like I've had people go why do you hate handling I don't hate handling I just think that if it's something you do you need to be informed about the risk you need to be informed that it's not something you have to do we've talked before that and I was under this impression for years that every some people think everybody holds that it's part of the hobby that you're not a true hobbyist if you haven't held your spider I've had people email me saying you know what I've kept you know I keep 25 species I've been keeping for Six years, but I, I really need to hold one so I can be a true hobbyist. And it's like, no, you don't need to hold them at all. A lot of us don't do any handling or very little handling because we start working with the old world species and we practice good technique with, regardless of what we're working with. So that one can be a tricky one for me. I'll sometimes point them to people that have done videos on handling and that have covered the topic. It's not one that I've really covered, and say, you know, do your homework. I do have my article about handling, and I usually include that one now when I, whenever I answer this. Like, hey, here are my thoughts on handling here are some things you need to think about and now here are some species that might be okay with handling if that's something you want to do but again I feel like I'm like the worst person in the world to ask for that because it's not my thing so I try to usually pass off but anyway I will answer it I will give them you know just heads up slings and juveniles I would keep hands off they're too skittish usually It's usually the adults that kind of calm down and tolerate handling more. And again, I'll have people, I know somebody's going to hear this and go, I've held mine such a sling and it's been great. Okay, totally cool. But for the most people, I think that's just adding an extra, you know, it's it's putting your spider in danger when it doesn't need to be I, rehousings are some of the most stressful times and the times when if something bad's going to happen that's going to be it and taking every time you take that tarantula out of the enclosure especially little slings they can get i've had one almost go up my sleeve before it, it can before you know it you could have a, a tarantula lost in your house i just think it's not worth the risk but that's my personal opinion so that's one that i get quite a bit that i have a hard time with but uh that i get why people ask it i totally understand it and i try to deal with it tactfully and give them the information they want while i also warning them of some things they should think about before they go ahead and try it. All right, so on to the next one. This one probably would have been a little lower on the list, but it's been asked a lot more lately, so I kind of moved it up a little bit. The question usually starts off with, Hey, Tom, can so-and-so species, pick a species, be kept communally? I'd really like to get communal tarantulas. A lot of times they find the ones that are communal to be too expensive, usually the M. Balfori, and they're looking for other species to create communals with. But some of the ones that I've been asked about are a little scary. So I think what happens is people, when they see their first tarantula communal, it kind of blows their mind because all they've been told is these are cannibalistic creatures, they can't live together, they're not social. And then they see an M. Balfori video and it gets them thinking, what other species are able to be kept this way? Unfortunately, I've got people approaching me that are trying to keep species together that have no business being kept communally at all. Not even as an experiment. We know what happens when you keep them together. You end up with a bunch of fat spiders and a bunch of dead spiders. But I've been asked about avicularia. I get quite a bit and that's because apparently there's been a couple people that have kept them in communals. I haven't gotten a lot of information on this, but it is not a species. I would keep communally I think the only one I heard of that supposedly was successful is somebody at a pet store had a bunch of them in together but when I dug a little bit more they basically bought a bunch of avicularia didn't have the cages for them so stuck them all in one cage that isn't a communal setup and god knows how that turned out but I've asked you know again I've been asked about everything from OBT's the hammer eye Bialbopilosis, I got one the other day for H. Chalensis, they said they wanted to buy a bunch of slings, and they know they're a very cuddly spider, so would it be okay to keep them all together? You'd be amazed the ones I've been asked about, and unfortunately, I'm probably partially to blame for this, because I have posted up obviously a lot with the M. Balfouri, with the Piecelotheria Metallica, we had an NC. N communal going for a little bit which did not last very long they're hungry little boogers so I I worry that I uh, people see this and then they're like oh this guy's keeping all these spiders together what could I keep together and a lot of times it's people that are just brand new to the hobby which really scary because they're going out like I I've, can't tell you how many times somebody go I have a chance to get a bunch of el para hibana slings but I don't really want to keep them separately could I keep them as a communal if I give them enough space and it's like no not unless you want just a couple l para Hibana left they're gonna eat each other so that's one I get a lot now now, a lot more lately, and I think it's because there's been so many more attempts at communals out there. There's a lot of people doing different species of Etheria now. Obviously, the M. Balfourri communal, when I started mine, there wasn't a lot of information out there. And that was one of the reasons I put it together because I'm like, all right, people can follow my lead if this works. If it doesn't work, they've been warned. Now you go out, you do M. Balfourri, everybody's got an M. Balfori communal. It's awesome. A lot of people are keeping them. A lot of people are doing videos on them we're getting to the point now where people are trying to make like bigger and bigger and bigger ones. Like now we got ones with over hundred specimens in it. It's getting kind of crazy. But anyway, I think the idea of a communal spider is incredibly fascinating to people. I think when they start doing a little bit of research and they start hearing names thrown around like the H. Gigas, like the N.N.C., like the H. Philicella, they start thinking, well, if these guys can be kept that way. Maybe others can be kept that way. And then it's usually me trying to explain, you know, very clearly that there are only a handful that this can be done successfully with out of that handful there's probably only one or two you know m Balfouri easily the best of the bunch as far as being adaptable to these conditions but other ones that you have certain rules that you have to follow and if you don't follow those rules you end up with one very fat spider so that's been a tough one lately and again I'm partially to blame I can't I can't put it any other way it's because people see what I'm doing with mine they don't have the background knowledge or the context or recognize that this doesn't work with everything and they start getting curious so that's one that's been popping up quite a, probably not is you know uh, in the grand scheme of things over the years i've done this it, it's more of a recent one but it has been asked frequently most recently so that's why i included it so high up on the list okay next one up is temperature get this one all the time especially this time of year when it starts getting cold what happens is people will pick up their spiders in the summer or in the warmer spring months, they go through some heat. The house is nice. And then all of a sudden it turns winter and they realize, my Lord, my house is drafty. It gets a little chilly in here and they start freaking out. Same thing happened to me when I first got my slings. We had the tarantula room, which at that point had a bunch of transformers in it and everything else. And I had this little shelf just for my spiders. And we realized that room got a little bit cold in the winter time. So you start worrying, is it going to be too cold for my spider? I get a lot of folks asking, what is the lowest temperature I can keep them at? what are spiders that do well at colder temperatures will this kill my spider and again I totally get it and this is a question I will continue to answer until the day I stop doing this because there is a lot of misinformation out there if you look at a lot of the so-called care sheets or care guides out there they give quote unquote ideal temperatures that your spider has to be kept this temperature to do well it drives me absolutely insane because then we get things like people will contact me I got a T. tea it doesn't seem to be doing well I've got a lamp on it and it's at 90 degrees like the care guy told me and that might be a bit of an exaggeration but I've literally had people tell me they are freaking out because they read that the tarantula needs to be kept between 85 and 87 degrees and they can only get it up to 86 or 83 degrees or something like that it kills me because we probably end up with more dead spiders with people trying to play with the temperatures if we just left them alone and kept them at room temperature now The question about room temperature, everybody, oh, room temperature, whatever you're comfortable in, they're comfortable in. We've gone over this as well. I like it cold. What I'm comfortable in wouldn't necessarily be a great temperature for tarantulas. So you do got to keep in mind that if you're generally, if you're able to go sit in a t-shirt in the room, your tarantula is going to be okay. For those of you who like it a little chillier. You may want to find a higher corner, a shelf higher up where it gets a little warmer. Because again, I've talked before about the fact that, on the, you know, if you measure the, tr- the temperature in my tarantula room, it's like 72 degrees on the floor. It can be 80 degrees all the way up to the ceiling. It, it really, there is a range. So just put them up a little bit higher. However, with folks, I think where it becomes an issue is with folks with the really drafty houses where they have breeze coming through and it can get quite chilly. That could be a problem. I would worry about breezes. If you have them in a room where the wind picks up and it gets chilly outside and you can feel a cold breeze, that's not a good situation for them, especially the majority of them would be all right your Grammostolas, your fauna your brachypelmas normally live in regions where it can get cold you'd be surprised at some of the temperatures that they're able to adapt to so i wouldn't worry about ones like that and again if it's around 60s you're usually fine now for police for homesteads drafty, you need to get them in a place where they're not going to get a draft that's that's dangerous something i wouldn't play with as a matter of fact in my tarantula room, I realize when i, I start expanding it when we start getting all the transformers out and I started adding more and more shelves. There's a window in there and I realized it was a little drafty and I ended up sealing up that window at one point during the winter because the draft was coming in. That's something you don't want. You do want to be careful of drafts. So that's something when people go, yeah, well, if the whole room's, you know, 65 degrees, you're fine. Well, if it's 65 degrees, but they're in an area where there's a cold breeze coming in, I would definitely remedy that and make sure that windows, you know, sealed up or make sure you put them in a place where they're not going to, you know, be hit by that breeze. If it gets colder, I have spoken to folks where it can get down to the 50s, that's a little bit chilly for some of the species out there and you would in that instance probably have to look at some type of extra heat. Obviously the I have one of stand up oil filled space heaters that work really great. It's got a temperature you know, thermostat on it, you can set it to a certain temperature heating the whole room is pref- more preferable than trying to heat the individual enclosures so for example if you're keeping them in a den or an office just heating that den is probably better than trying to heat the individual enclosures i do not encourage people to use heat lamps heat rocks anything like that in the uh, like right on directly on the tarantulas the heat rocks they'll just sit on them and basically fry heat lamps can burn them up I've had some people use heat lamps in a room that it's not directly near the tarantulas. It's just taking the chill off the room. That can work. I've actually used the heat lamps on my snakes. will raise the temperature in that area up quite a bit. So even just having a shelf somewhere nearby that can work. The other way to do it is you take a basically a heat mat and you put a piece of foam on the back of it to keep the heat coming out one direction you mount that on a wall and you can position your enclosures to a point where they're getting a little bit of that heat, but not so much that the spider will hug that heat source and become desiccated and die. So that's a little something to think about if you are in a home or in a situation where it does get too cold for the tarantulas, especially if it's a place where it doesn't warm up year round. I've had talk, I've spoken to a couple of people where apparently the temps, even during the warmer months, aren't particularly warm. That might be something you look out. but I would say in most instances, they're going to be fine without an extra heat source. And when you try to, introduce an extra heat source to kind of warm things up and improve the growth rate or whatever you can sometimes do more harm than good but again I totally get why people ask that question I totally get why they worry about the temperatures getting too low I'd been there when I first started doing this for actually for about two years my first two winters I was freaking out about getting too cold so I understand it sometimes they just need somebody to kind of put their mind at ease, reassure them that it's going to be okay, and I'm more than happy to do that. So moving on to the next one, this one I get all the time lately, it's bizarre, but I will get, could you please identify this species of tarantula for me? Now, in you might be thinking that it's something they're finding in the wild or somebody's got it mislabeled but a lot of cases it's people who have bought something as a sling and they're looking at pictures of their sling and they're looking at pictures of what the spider is supposed to look like eventually and they think oh I think this is a different spider and in more instances than not I would say the vast majority of them I look at the sling and it's like that's the sling that looks like the correct spider to me of course slings can be so difficult to you know especially new world slings all kind of look the same so if you show a little brown New World sling with a little black mirror patch on its butt, it's very difficult to differentiate that from any other New World sling, so... I don't know what's going on I think what's happening is people hear about spiders being sold that are mislabeled they get that into their heads and then they get a spider that doesn't quite look like the pictures they had looked in google and remember some of those pictures the lighting's off the colors off you don't want to judge them just by appearance but they will see something and go you know what I don't think this is the correct spider then they start researching other spiders it could be and they find something that looks like it and go and they become convinced that they were sold the wrong spider this happens all the time now I've get, I get a lot of these uh, you usually two or three a week of people sending. Now, sometimes they're correct. I will throw that out there. And I'm not going to, I've had situations, I've had, I think, two different ones I bought that they put on size and we looked at them and went, that's not what I bought. That's the wrong spider. One that I bought was supposed to be a B. albiceps. They basically gave me a T. wagens and that one was obviously mislabeled. I have what was supposed to be a difficile, a lazydor difficile, And once it, you know, now that it's matured and we looked at it and I looked at the spermatheca, it looks like it's either... It didn't look like it was an LP. It looked like it might have even been a hybrid because I couldn't find anything that resembled the spermathacon. So who knows what the heck it was. So does it happen? Yes. Is it prevalent? I would think not. But every once in a while, you hear about somebody, a dealer or somebody buying slings from somebody. Now you expect if you buy something from somebody, if you're buying slings from somebody that they bred, you're hoping in good faith that they're going to be the species they say they are. But every once in a while, people that will happen, a dealer will get some stock in. They can't tell the difference it's that size people go why didn't the dealer know you they all look the same at that size you're you're relying on this person selling it to you that they know what they're talking about and that they're selling you the correct species but then what happens people get them out usually a couple years go by especially with the slower growing ones They start maturing, getting their adult colors, and people are like, wait a minute, this doesn't look like the spider I thought I bought. So does it happen? Yes, but it's not common, I think. For folks that are asking me, I mean, usually what ends up happening is I go, it looks like a new world species. I can't tell at this point. Your best bet is if you really do think it's the wrong species, try to get a molt on it. hope you can compare it to Spermatheca, or just wait till it becomes mature or starts getting its colors, and then you'll have a better idea. I have had situations where people have had what they thought was supposed to be a, B, Oratum, and they ended up with a B, baby I've had situations where people thought they got a Stola, uh pulchropes, yet they ended up with something else. It does happen, it's not prevalent, and it's not something most people should be worrying about. If you get to a point where it starts to mature, And you're curious, like you think it might be the wrong species. Yes. If you've got pictures of it and it's starting to show the adult colors and they don't match up, definitely reach out. But it shouldn't be something the majority of people are worrying about all the time. And what I'm getting is a lot of these lately. So I'm thinking something's out there where people are starting to freak out thinking they got the wrong spiders. And what it ends up is me usually just going, I don't know what it is. It looks right now. It looks like, yes, it could be. I get a lot with the LP. They think it's a different species. Yes, it looks like it's an LP sling to me, but let it grow up and see what you get. So not something I would really be worrying about. Not something that one of those ones up. I mean, again, I'll answer it. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes we do. You know, it's the only time. Honestly, the only time it's really fun for me is when they do send a picture and it's like, oh, whoa, that's definitely not what you thought it was. And we do get some of those pet shop ones are the ones we usually get ones where people go. Yeah, I bought this as an chromatis, but it looks like a Formictopus, you know, Cancerides. I've gotten those before. And the pet store ones, yes, if you buy something from a pet store as a sling and it grows up and it doesn't look right, the chances are it's probably the wrong species. If you buy something from backwater reptiles, chances are you're getting the wrong species. There are instances where it happens, but the majority, if you're buying from reputable dealers, if you're buying some of these people out there that have been in the business for a while, it shouldn't be anything to really worry about. I just think there's enough to worry about and then stress about in the hobby without worrying about getting the wrong spider. So it can happen. And again, I, I absolutely reach out and I don't mind answering these. It just, it's become weird how many of them I get. It used to be every once in a while you get one. Now it seems like consistently I'm getting people. I think I got sold the wrong spider. I don't know if there was some big thing out there, video or something where somebody said this was a big issue. I don't know what's going on, but it seems more prevalent than ever. So that's become a big one lately. Wasn't so much earlier when I started doing this stuff, but definitely one that pops up quite a bit now next one up is why is my spider not eating we get this one all the time it can be you know this is one I expect to get to the day I die and I totally understand because as much as it sounds like a simple question for somebody just getting into the hobby it can be very stressful to have your tarantula not eating and what we usually do is I have a checklist I go through when did you get your spider I just bought it three days ago there you go it hasn't settled in yet we start there make sure it's settled in make sure that it's you know set up right that it has a place to go that you gave it a hide. that you gave it a starter burrow. then if they had it for a little while was it in good shape when you got it is the booty nice around does it have a nice fat abdomen in which case it's probably in pre molt. I ask what they've been feeding it have you been feeding it consistently a lot of times you get something like this yeah I was feeding it every day and it suddenly stopped eating and I'll be able to go there's your answer right there it's filled up you've fed it quite a bit it's probably going to go into a long pre molt period so be prepared because it's going to take a little while and it's just the natural how they grow and you go through the whole molt process so this one you get quite a bit and it's it's fun sometimes to break it down because again after doing it for a while you know exactly which questions to ask to get to the root of what might be causing it now every once in a while you do get a sad case where something's not eating and it's because the spider is unhealthy and those kind of stink and again you try to troubleshoot and figure out what's different was there new substrate change was there something done you know did it get too cold was it you you go through all these little troubleshooting things to try to find out what might have led to this sometimes you find nothing i had a situation recently where somebody's spider died it sounds like the the enclosure was set up perfect it sounds like the care was getting per it was perfect the environment in the home seemed okay the spider just sounded like it was probably weak and sick to begin with and didn't do well it happens, but the majority of the time when there's a spider not eating, it's one that was either purchased already in pre-malt, it's one that hasn't settled in yet, and it'll usually eat in a couple of weeks, and the people will email me back and go, you're right, it ate, or it's, you know, they've been feeding it all along, and it's gone into its natural pre-malt period. There's usually not too much to worry about there, but that's a very common one, and obviously, I completely understand why people are asking it, And that one leads to the next question. How do I tell if my spider is in premolt? Again, that one is one of the top questions by far. They will usually come with a specific species. And in some cases, it's pretty easy. And you go into your spiel, they're going to have a fat booty. Their colors are going to dull out. If it's a sling, they're going to get super shiny. You know, they become more lethargic. You can do your whole thing and they go, oh, okay. I'm seeing some of those in mine. Other times you get situations like some of the arboreals, it can be more tricky because they don't fatten up as much. Uh, the C. C. Kind of pubicins is one that I get a lot of questions on because those guys don't get particularly fat. They still throw me off. I've had these guys for years and I will still be surprised. Like mine will stop eating. I'll be like, oh, is it getting old? What's what's wrong with it? And then next thing you know, it, it has a molt like, oh, duh, I should know this by now. So there are certain species that will, you know, obviously not look the part, so to speak. They don't fatten up as much. Avicularias, I have a lot of folks like, yeah, my baby avicularia just surprised me with a mole. I didn't think it was that fat at all. I think with the the arboreal tarantulas especially they can't get too too fat because that could be dangerous them bouncing around the trees all chubbed up so they don't get quite as thick but i have noticed they become more lethargic overall they'll become more secretive some of them will web up more they tend to sit more sedentary in one corner as i drop my notes in the background there's a lot of ways you can tell with them one of the ones that comes up a lot is pisoletherium metallica and i just had somebody ask about this because i've had this situation with mine as well the first one i read would eat. It was doing fine. It would stop eating. I go, oh good. It's in pre A month would go by, no pre You know, over a month would go by, no pre I'd drop in a prey at them and it would eat again. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? They would, it was one of the only species of tarantulas I've ever raised that would do the little fasting thing we do a little fast for a couple you know a month or so then eat again and the next thing you know it was in pre molt. so you do have situations like that that makes it confusing but overall there are signs to look for i did do a video on what to look for as far as pre molt, what molt is what the spiders do to kind of give people a heads up i think the biggest thing i would have i'd like to take back is i mentioned the fact that their butts get i mentioned that slings butts get shiny because slings aren't covered with all the hairs yet so they usually the abdomens get very distended and shiny and i can't tell how many people will email me and go, I have an adult grandma stole a pulchra and uh, its butt isn't that shiny yet? And I was like, oh, they misconstrued. So that's one I'd love to have back and be able to clarify in that video because I don't think I made it clear enough. But There are many different signs to look for. I think the majority of people listening to this podcast right now are probably aware of them, but we all still have those ones that kind of throw us, again, mine's the GBB, where they have it, they stop eating, you freak out and you realize, nope, they're just having themselves a molt. They just didn't put on that much weight this time. So a good question, understandable question, one that even those of us that are season keepers that have kept for a while will still every once in a while get surprised. It's a totally reasonable question and one that I expect to continue to answer for years and years to come. Um, and on the topic of molting, the other one I sometimes get, not as frequent as this one, but it pops up every once in a while, is their tarantula seals themselves up. I know it's probably in pre-molt, but I don't think it left itself enough room. Should I open it up and give it more room? No, definitely not. Tarantulas have been around for a long, long time. They, they obviously, problems can happen during molt, but... One of the problems usually isn't that they don't leave themselves enough space. They can molt. I've had tarantulas molt in transit in tiny little areas. They don't need a lot of space to molt. If a tarantula has sealed itself up, it has given itself enough room to complete the process, and you should not, under any circumstances, disturb it. Even if you think that the area it's molting in is not that big. If you watch one molt, they don't really take a lot of room. You know, There's a little wiggling and moving, but they don't need a lot of room to do it. So no, do not worry about your tarantula not having enough room to molt. Do not open up the area. You All you do is risk harming your tarantula or interrupting the molt process, which could be deadly to your tarantula. So that's one we'll answer right off the bat. I get that one quite a bit. Just had that one the other day and I had to warn the person, do not open it up. Do not play with it. It knows what it's doing. And finally, so let's see who can guess this one by far. The other ones are kind of, you know, somewhat in order. I don't, again, I don't like going, this is number 10. This is number, it's just not my thing. However, this one is definitely number one. It's a question I get asked more than any other question. I can guarantee any given week that I'm going to get questions on YouTube about it. I'm going to get questions in my email box about it. I'll give you a second to guess what is the number one question by far I've been asked since doing this. All right, you got your answer in mind. It is, help, my tarantula has buried itself. What should I do? It's easily the number one. It's We've all been there. With, I've obviously documented through podcasts and through articles and through my YouTube that I was in the same boat. I was bringing up my LP was the first one I experienced this with, but we've all been there. We get a spider, we get a sling, whether it be a sling juvenile, it's usually more with slings. And the first thing it does is dig a hole, bury itself. And we freak out. Can it breathe? Can it get water? How's it going to eat? What is it going to do? Is it going to die? We've all been through it. It's probably the most confounding part of the hobby. I've had people that have kept tarantulas for quite some time and they email me. I'm really worried this time. It's been a while. I gone ahead a couple times and succumbed to these the anxiety, the worry, and dug something up and just found a really, you know, peed off spider in there. We've all been there. And I think it bothers people, it freaks them out. We don't get it. We don't understand how something can bury itself and be okay, especially when we're told they need access to water. Like how are they getting the water when they're buried? It's by far the pro the question that I get more than any other question. What makes it more difficult for people is, well, ninety nine percent of the time there is absolutely nothing to worry about. Every once in a while, we'll have a situation like what we had with the P muticus, which I had happen once with a G kirogi kirogi. They every once in a while you'll get something that buries itself too deeply. And doesn't come up after molting or doesn't come up to get something to eat. But that doesn't happen very often at all. So I think we need to be cognizant that there are issues where every once in a while with certain species, especially if you give them too much dirt to dig. That's my big one now that I never thought about when I first got into it, everybody says if you got something that's going to dig, give it a 32 ounce deli cup, which for folks that are overseas they're pretty deep, they're about 7 inches deep or so so if you get a little 1 in sling and it digs all the way down to the bottom, it's not going to know prey items are up there. So I do think you can put in too much substrate sometimes and create a situation where the spider can't, it doesn't resurface, doesn't come back up to get prey items, but 99% of the time it's nothing to worry about, it's an honest to God it's it's just what they do when they're in pre They they're not going to eat anymore, they're not in the wild, they're not going to sit out in the open where they can be picked off and predated on by other animals. So they bury themselves so they can hide, be safe and secure when they go through that very strenuous and a process that also leaves them very exposed and in a very vulnerable state. So it's normal for that to happen. I think it's also normal for people to worry about it when their tarantula suddenly buries itself. So again, I totally get it. I have answered this question probably thousands of times over the course of the years. And it's just more often than not, i'll ask them to send me a picture because what i want to do is make sure that every once in a while somebody will send you a picture and i remember one the person had the spider in like a gallon jug and it was an inch 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 and a quarter sling had dug all the way down underneath about seven inches of substrate and that one i'm like dude you want to pull that out of there and give it a little less dirt so that it can sense that something's up top because right now unless that prey item goes down in that hole it's not going to know it's there So sometimes I will ask to see pictures of the setup just in case, but the vast majority of the time, it's totally natural. And when people give me the background, yeah, it was eating really well and it buried itself. Primo, you're all set. So that would be by far that we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one because I've obviously covered this one before and everybody's heard it, but that would be by far the number one most asked question. And the one that, you know, again, I wrestle with myself and I'm sure other people out there have had situations where you've been, you know, I know I shouldn't dig this thing up, but I'm going to do it anyway. So Hopefully that was entertaining. Hopefully it's something that, you know, people can go through and realize, you know, for those of you that are new to the hobby, again, recognize you're not the only one with these questions and there is absolutely nothing wrong with asking them. Again, the only one I kind of make fun of is the ones where they ask best beginner species when they're on the beginner species video or... Can you give me husbandry tips on one that's a husbandry video? Those are the ones that sometimes I giggle at, but these are all good, solid questions. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. So if anybody's got one sitting in my mailbox or at a comment right now, I will answer it the same way I've always answered them and will enjoy doing so because I know what it's like to be in the hobby. I know what it, how stressful it can be. And so any, any way, shape or form, I can help alleviate that stress. I'm there to do so. So that will do it for this one. As always, you can find me on Tom's Big Spiders. On YouTube and I finally posted up a video. There were some talks about it. Somebody actually emailed me and they thought that I'd quit YouTube and I don't know where that came from, but no, I didn't. I've just been busy and quite frankly... I've got so many things I want to do in the new house with the videos. I've been kind of holding off on some things. So, nope, haven't quit. And I've got one up. We also have an article on Birupi's Simaruxagorum that should be going up pretty soon. I am. I mentioned this earlier. I'm hoping that one of the people that discovered the spider can clarify the whole issue surrounding the fact that the government there says that they were pulled out of the wild without permits. The people who originally collected the first specimens of them said, nope, they had permits. So basically what happened is I posted a video up and a guy who's friends with one of the people that discovered them that was mentioned in the materials that I was reading about this whole controversy, he knows him, said, no, the guy's on the up and up, I'm sure he did it, you know, totally with permits. So I asked him to try to get me in contact with him so we could clear this up. I don't know if the guy will get back to me. I passed along my email address and I would love, I, I, I explained in the article, I have to address this. The fact that a lot of people think these were poached from the wild and he said he'll do his best. So I'm hoping he gets a hold of me. We can clear it up. Otherwise, you know, so that's the only reason I'm waiting to post this one up. It was actually supposed to go up today, but now I'm going to wait because God forbid I can get this guy to talk to me about it. Maybe we can clear this whole thing up. We shall see. So hang tight with that one. And again, we will discuss the next podcast. I will likely do a a brief thing on how I'm keeping the Birupi's Simaroxigorums because uh, some people are picking them up now. They're very expensive and they're really worried. They don't know how to keep them. So I'll share what's been working for me. So again, website, thomsmixplayers.com. You can pop on there. I will have that article up with some information soon. That will be it for me. As always, thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you guys all next time.